Well, a very warm welcome to you, Elizabeth. Thank you very much for coming in today uh, and participating in the Survivor Story Project. And um, I know that you have a very important story to tell. And so I'd like to just invite you to begin by telling us about your early Do days. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I'm 69 now, to give it some context in terms of the time frame. So I was born in Europe post-war, 1951, so I'm a baby boomer. My family um, had a pretty tough time after the war, so they applied as 10-pound Europeans <laughs> to yeah. come to Australia. We came here in 1953. I was about 18 months old. Mm -hmm. um, spent most of my childhood growing up in Port Stephens at Nelson Bay, my father was a baker, pastry cook. So five kids in the family, two girls and three boys. I was sort of in the middle, old, the, second, the oldest of the two girls. Uh, a very traditional Catholic European family. Mm. Rosary every night, um, you know, uh, went to Catholic schools as soon as we were able. So even though we, lived, we first lived in Williamtown and we used to travel to Raymond Terrace so that we could go to a Catholic school, which was quite a distance. I mean, I was in kindergarten then. We moved right. to the bay when I was about seven. Mm. Um, and then a Catholic school opened up in the church hall uh, down in Nelson Bay. So, and so it was a, one of those composite schools, yep. three nuns and three classes in a room, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I then pleaded with my family to allow me to go to boarding school. My two older brothers had gone to boarding school, but they were, I think that was mainly because they were a bit f going a bit feral. Right. Um, but I wanted to go to boarding school because I knew that that was my only chance of meeting the goals that I had for myself, which was mm. to go to university. Mm. My father was not real keen, but my mother was prepared to support it. So it was. So that's what happened. I went to St Mary's um, Dominicans at Maitland yep. for all of my uh, high school years, from mm -hmm. years one to six. And I mean, looking back on it, that in the in in the main, that's a pretty that's a fairly positive experience. I mean, we had our issues with the nuns, but I wasn't, I, I felt I was being nurtured there and that I knew that I was moving towards the sorts of goals that I'd set for myself. I knew pretty early on what I, what I wanted. Mm. Um, mm. So then I, um, I got a Commonwealth scholarship, I got a few scholarships at the end of my HSC and one of them was a Commonwealth scholarship, which I took up. And so I, I enrolled in social work at New, New South Wales University. So mm -hmm. I moved to the city, which was a pretty, you know, fairly daunting thing to mm. do with very little resources. My father wouldn't support me to go to university. Wow. So that was, that was, that was pretty tough. Mm. But um, I think then, you know, life become a lot more complicated. I mean, if you think about a young woman who's almost in an enclosed community, it was yeah. like living in a, in, you know, in an officiate or whatever, it was full on, the full Monty in terms of the Catholic thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to then move to the city and be confronted with, even the media I found confronting, um, you, you know, the media about sexuality. This is sort of in the late 60s, early 70s. Mm. Um, so I found that all fairly difficult to deal with. And I then, I was not really in what I'd call a relationship. I'd met a man who was a fair bit older than me when I was in mm -hmm. the day at the end of the HSC and he was fairly keen for us to have some sort of a sexual relationship but it wasn't conventional. It wasn't 
taking me out to dinner and buying flowers and going to concerts or doing any of those sorts of conventional things. So I found that pretty confusing. Yeah. And that's when I I was coming up here for something. And so I contacted Terry Sylvester. Um, mm. I didn't know him terribly well. I'd sort of lost contact with priests because most of the contacts were in the Maitland area. When so I was, was, school. was Terry a parish priest? He was a parish priest at the time, but my contact with him was through the YCW. Ah, uh, young my Christian older, My older brothers um, would go mm. to dances and my parents would let me go with the boys. Right. And that's so that's where I'd met him. Right. And so I made some sort of an assumption, well, you know, he works with young people, he runs this young person's, he'll have some idea of where I'm coming from. Right. Um, so I didn't know him well and he certainly wasn't, I was never in a parish with him. No. So you met him as you were finishing the HSC, is that right? No, or? I would have gone to some dances through the school holidays through that final year. My yeah. parents let me go with, with my brothers, my older yeah. brothers. Right. Um, um, and so I then contacted him. He was then in the Newcastle Parish. Right. Um, up on the hill. Right. So it was convenient as well, you know. I mean, I came in by train. It was convenient just to walk up the hill and, and meet with him without me having to get public transport to some other place. Mm -hmm. And so we had, he met me. As far as I can recall, there was nobody else about. I can't remember what, what day of the week it was, actually. I'm assuming it was a weekday. It would have been early in my fairly early in my first year out, so I was seven. I was just seventeen. Seventeen. So, I guess I sort of thought of myself as an adult. I had just started being sexually active with this guy, but I wasn't comfortable with it. I was quite confused by the whole thing. So you were you were sexually active with Terry? No, no, no. I was no. sexually active with this man with in Sydney. Oh, so right, okay. And so, that was what yeah. was confusing and confronting. Oh, and, okay. And so I went to see Terry yeah. Sylvester to try and sort some of that stuff oh, out in my okay. head. Yep. Um, I think he just made some assumptions. I mean, I was a pretty good-looking girl. I was, mm. you know, I, I, my sexuality was just beginning to, to come to, to, to be something that I needed to deal with, and so I was pretty overwhelmed by it. Um, and I think he took advantage, he certainly took advantage of mm. that. So the actual mechanics of what happened was we were in the presbytery. Yeah. Um, we were sitting in one of those front rooms, what were commonly mm. called parlours or yep. interview rooms. Yep. That presbytery's gone, physically gone now. Mm. Uh, we were sitting in tub chairs. They were sort of a bit bigger than this, sort of more, yeah, tub chairs they yep. were. Yeah. Um, I don't have a lot of recall. My memory around sexual matters is not real crash hot anyway, but I have a memory of sitting on his lap mm. and I'm assuming that I was probably feeling... Uh, I can't recall what he specifically said to me to get me into that position, mm. um, but I would think it was along the lines of, you know, this is part of normal behaviour, this is, you know, da -da, I don't know, mm. something along those lines. Mm. Um I can't recall what the transition piece was between that and being in the road, being walking along the street with him. Um, and he took me to what I now know were the YCW rooms, right. which was about a block away from the from the presbytery and the church, up still up in in in, in Church Street up on the hill. Yeah. Um, I recall walking in the road with him, but not 
talking to him. I had this sense of something, I'm, I'm, you know, something's happening and I don't know how to handle it. Um, I would probably guess that I was confused and aroused at the same time mm. and still not, but not knowing how to get, yeah. how to, how, what, what to do. Yeah. Now, the, the most important thing about going into that space was that he locked the doors afterwards behind us. Why? So, and it was it was a strange space. It was a like a great big dormitory space. Mm. So there were it was full of beds that were un unmade. Um, I wasn't a member of the YCW, so I'd never been there before. I I don't even really know what the room what the space was used for, mm. but it was a dormitory space with lots of beds in it, and that's where he proceeded then to undress me. I know I don't think I undressed him. I think he undressed himself. But we were certainly naked, both of us, um, and he, we had sex, mm. full sex. Later in my life, I had a lot of recurring problems with dissociative disorder. Yeah. Um, especially around sexual, particularly and almost exclusively around sexual stuff. Mm. So, I can, in hindsight, sort of make a reasonable guess that I was probably fairly disassociative at the time. Yeah, during the During event. the whole event. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it would have been incredibly confusing. Well, it was, especially since I'd gone there about my confusion about sexuality yeah. anyway. Yeah, exactly. And then this and whole this thing unfolded. And this whole thing unfolded. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, after the event, uh, I, the, the, the two things that stand in my mind, one was I had to ring Maitland the school because there was an event at the school that's what I'd come up to Newcastle for Mm. and I remember I was still naked and he took me to a phone and I spoke on the phone to this nun (laughs) without Mm. any clothes on I mean I felt it was really weird it was almost surreal yeah um and then uh, I obviously went off to that event and I think I just decided what was that all about um just pretend it didn't happen yeah, right. Um, so mm. I went back to Sydney and basically did my best to sort of just put it all behind me and pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. I subsequently then, I don't know what the time frame was, I was living um, as a, a living help for a, 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 sing, a Jewish mum, single mum who had a, do- a daughter who was around 11. Mm. And so I did the house bit of the housework and I mm. looked after this child after school when mum was at work and blah, blah, blah. So that was at Double Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, but And somehow I must have given him my address because I got a letter from him. Right. And the letter indicated that he wanted to continue a relationship with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a sister in Sydney, um, he said in this letter, um, and that he came to see her on a reasonably regular basis. That threw me into absolute turmoil. I thought, because this was a written document, I thought, like, how do, what do I do? Do I mm. respond to it? You know, mm. I'm all of 17. You've been eight. trying to put it behind you. I was trying to put it behind me. Yeah. This guy's 40 years old or yeah. around in his 40s somewhere. I thought, this is, this is not okay. No. Now, at the time, I was listening to a program called Sounds of Silence, which was a two-hour program on a Sunday night with a priest radio radio yeah program i think it was on two two i can't remember i've got it written down somewhere 
And so I decided I would – I didn't ring in to the program because it was a ring-in program. People rang in and asked yeah. for advice. So I decided to ring right at the very end when it had gone off air but when I thought the priest would still be in the studio. Right. So that's what happened. I got onto him in the studio. I gave a bit of an outline of what my dilemma was, what my problem was, that I'd got this letter from this guy who had – I had sex a with priest. Him, a priest. Yeah. So he then came out to my to where I lived at Double Bay and within fairly short order tried to sexually assault me. The priest? This priest, McLaren. Right. We, I remember us, we were sitting on a lounge, on a, you know, next to each other. Yeah. And he put his arm around me and tried to kiss me. Right. Um, I, I got up. Uh, I can't remember just exactly how I did it, but I showed him the door and I was in an absolute state. I was, yeah, you know, I would have been bawling by that stage. Um, uh, I then went into, I would suggest, a fairly long period of chaotic depression and anxiety and um, I was still coping. I was still mm. going to university and I was still... But I was, I'm reasonably, you know, I got a Commonwealth scholarship. I wasn't stupid. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I could, I had this capacity to sort of compartmentalise my life. Yes, yes. So I could put things into boxes and basically close them up. Yes. Um, but I had, uh, there was a period after that where I withdrew socially. I mean, I wasn't, I used to go to the chaplaincy at the university. Yes. And I used to go to mass there quite regularly. Yeah. Um, but then what I did is I started going to St Julian's at Haymarket on a fairly regular basis. I was almost going to Mass daily, either at St Julian's at Haymarket or at a little Mars tra- chapel down at the Quay because right. it was close to where I got off my bus. And, uh, uh, yeah, I was only just hanging. I was. I think I was hanging on to these sort of rituals as a way to um, to sort of preserve something that was familiar and keep you somewhat keep me, stable as keep you me stable as yeah. I tried to get through university. Yeah, because I was still dealing with all this stuff. I was still in this relationship with this guy, which wasn't going terribly well. He was in the air force. He was the, it got resolved because he was transferred to Darwin. Right. So that just ended, but it was still, you know, my life was wasn't terribly stable psychologically, even yeah. though I was coping at university. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where to from there? So you, you finished your university studies? I finished, well, with difficulty. I was going okay until about, until the beginning of fourth year. Mm. I changed residences. I was living with another Jewish family with smaller children. And at some point in time, I mean, I was, physically I was okay. I was provided for in this family. They didn't work me terribly hard. Um, I had had roof over my head, I had food every day, I lived in a nice environment, you know, I had some social contact with the, their friends and whatever, even, and he was a professional guy, he was a dentist. I, I eventually, in my final year, so this was fourth year, mm. had had a nervous breakdown, what that was then called a nervous breakdown. Um, I couldn't, I'd had some counselling through the break between third and fourth year with a senior lecturer. Right. Um who did it basically pro bono, mm. um, one of the social work lecturers who was a psychologist. Uh, and that was my – and I didn't, I didn't disclose to anybody. What I didn't happened? disclose to anybody for maybe 30 years. 
Um, right. So as far as I was concerned, this was buried, this was not part of my life, but my life wasn't real good, you know, it was sort of falling apart around me. So um, I did have some counselling with Frank Pavlin through that Christmas break. Um, I then had the nervous breakdown. That was mm. early in fourth year. Mm. So I had to then leave that family because I couldn't function. And I think to some degree they thought I held them responsible for for my for my right. nervous breakdown. Um, so then I was on my own um, trying to manage with very little resources. Um, so mm. I then made contact with the Franciscans at Edgecliff and a group of, of not people from my own university but they were young Catholics from Sydney University mm-hmm. who basically took it upon themselves to look after me physically. I mean, they made sure I had some food. I was living with a family in Ramwick, um, which was not very good because they were ex-Nazis and my family grew up in, you know, Europe that was occupied and so I bailed out of that and I was, yeah, I I was living in a single room paying pretty much my whole income in rent and so these people were feeding me and keeping me going um, but fourth year was chaotic and I knew that I wasn't going to make fourth year, so I dipped out and got some work to get some resources together. Uh-huh. And um, and then so I then finished fourth year the following year. Mm-hmm. So all of this chaos basically led to a loss of a year, my final year at university. Yeah. Which I then, so I graduated the following year and I graduated okay. I had second, you know, I had honours. Yeah. Um, I didn't do an honours extra, but I, my marks reflected an honours degree. Yeah, which is amazing, like considering the trauma that you've been yeah. through in such a short period of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this the events, the first events happened in my first year at university. Yeah. So we're now talking yeah. sort of five years down the, the yeah. track. Um, not long after that, I met my husband. He was working, he was a senior parole officer and mm-hmm. I was doing a placement at parole, and then I got some work there during the Christmas break. Mm-hmm. He was 30 years older than me, which I think is really significant. Right. Um, and But he was the sort of, you know, I think I thought, I realised that I needed somebody like that in my life to give me some sense of stability. Yeah. Someone who wasn't going to be scared of me and scared of my sexuality, which most young people were. Mm. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, I mean, we he was married at the time, which was a, a, a major problem because um, he couldn't make a decision about his future. I ended up going overseas for 12 months mainly to have a, a break and he then decided during that time to leave his wife and I came back and we lived together and eventually we married and we were married until his death. So the, the relation, the, the, the marriage was a successful marriage yeah. in the main I then became aware, I mean, I was sort of aware that I was having these amnesic episodes because from time to time, and it happened a few times, I mean, guys would just turn up on my doorstep and would refer to a sexual encounter the night before and I'd have absolutely no memory of it. Right. Um, And this was happening to some degree in my marriage. Mm. And Ken couldn't understand it, neither could I. And he wouldn't tell me what had happened because he couldn't believe that I couldn't remember, that I had absolutely no recall. 
Right. So I then started seeing psychologists and and whatever to try and figure out what was going on. Um, most of that was I was doing a transactional analysis course out of the out of America at that time, which mm-hmm. was just an additional psychological qualification. Mm-hmm. And so most of that was an adjunct to that training where we would have therapy workshops and things like that. And so a lot of them were visiting psychologists and and fairly, you know, well-qualified people, a lot of them from America. Mm -hmm. At one point in time, and we'd been married quite a while then, we were actually living in the house on the lake, so we'd been married for at least 10 or 15 years by that stage. So were you up in Newcastle? I was back in Newcastle. Back in Newcastle. Um, I'd been working for Social Security and had done really well Mm -hmm. um, till I got to a management position, which I didn't like, and quit um, and went back to just working as a as a counsellor. And this one psychologist said that my symptoms were indicative of someone who had been sexually assaulted by a parent. Right. Um, this is during when you were studying the No, trans- no, this is when I was, this is post-study. So this is about yeah. 15 years into my professional career. Yeah, so when you were doing the transactional analysis. analysis stuff. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. but I was, yeah. I, yeah, I was, I was... I was well. I was seventeen then, so I was in my early thirties by this stage. Well, that threw an absolute spanner in the works. Mm. Um, I was. I know I was disassociative for. I mean, I was walking around like a zombie. If if Ken hadn't been there, I think I would have ended up in a in a psych ward. I was yeah. in a very bad state, mm. and there'd been some stuff around my dad that hadn't been resolved, especially after my mother died. Um, actually, I'll just go back to that one. There's an incident that happened with Terry Sylvester. The only other time I ever saw him mm-hmm. was when my mother died. I'd have to look up the year. I should know these years in my head, but I don't. Mm. I don't. Mm. Um, it would have been perhaps I was still working in Sydney, so perhaps 10 years after I graduated, so I was in my mid-20s. Right. And I'm, I saw Terry I came to Newcastle Station when Newcastle Station was still at the bottom of the line. Yep. And... I walked out of the train and Terry Sylvester was there and I was on my way up to the hospital my mother was dying. Terry right. Sylvester didn't recognise me. Right. And I, I don't know why, but I said to him, I am Elizabeth so-and-so. My mother is dying in the hospital. He sort of made the perfunctory, how are you going stuff, and we went our separate ways. Mm. So, and by the time I got to the hospital, my mother was dead. Oh, wow. So here I was with mm. this rage and this grief. Oh, my goodness. And I uh, and I was on my own. Yeah. Um, my husband was back in Sydney. No one, None of my siblings had arrived by that stage. She'd only just died. And forever wow. those two events are connected yeah. for me. And, yeah. you know, one of the things that subsequently has not, I'm not haven't worked through is that when they the psychologist who did this report when I, you know, just recently, made no mention of the impact of that event, as if it was of absolutely no consequence, you know, and going back to the McLaren matter, um, her her view was well that was really not that was neither here nor there, you know. Which was, psychologist was this? This was a psychologist that was nominated by the church, but who said she was impartial. Uh, so this is not a treating psychologist. This was part of the process of getting 
when I went. So you did eventually approach the church about yes, what happened after to the, you? after the Royal Commission. After the Royal Commission, so 2018 At, or uh, 16. 2016. It was straight after the Royal Commission. Mm-hmm. After my mum died, I guess uh, I can't attribute what bits belong to what part of the story. I mean, obviously I was grief-stricken with my mother's death, but I was still very busily trying to bury this other story. Um mm. And I know that for the twelve, the, for at least twelve months after Mum died, um, my life was not so much chaotic as um, on hold. Uh, I think without my husband, I I don't know how it would have panned out. But I mean, he really just took over and kept me going. I was I was working, but I was yeah. working in a not high stress environment at that time. I was a senior social worker. Uh, I supervised other social workers, which I was good at and I liked, uh, and I was working in a fairly small cell, so I didn't have um, responsibilities for um, clients insofar as, you know, these were, I was, I was working with, with graduated social workers. They were my, that was the prime focus of my, of my, I was in the public service and quite frankly the public service is a, you can be fairly well protected within the, the Commonwealth mm. Public Service. Mm. However, after that, they restructured everything. I was then put into a management position, which I loathed and I didn't, I didn't think I was good at. Um, so I quit the public service and we came back to Newcastle to live. And I, I got some work with public services on a temporary basis, but I subsequently then started working for Centrecare as a, as a counsellor. The, yeah, the Catholic Church. The old Church. Catholic family yeah. of Bureau, when yeah. Bill Burston was running it. So I think um, at one point you were asked to write a report, weren't you? Yes. Um, I can't remember if I was actually still working full-time or whether I was just doing part-time, but myself and another social worker were asked by the bishop to do a case study of the diocesan response to uh, a pedophile priest in this particular diocese. Um, And we did that report. It was... um, it wasn't forensic. It was really about how the diocese had responded to it and making some recommendations around that. Um, I never, I have no idea what happened with that report. I never got any feedback from it. I'm assuming that Viv, that the other social worker would have been the person who had submitted it because she was more senior than I. Mm. Um, and um, as far that was the last I heard of it. How until the Royal Commission. Mm. Um, when the Royal Commission was set up and they were coming back to Newcastle, I was contacted by uh, staff from the Royal Commission and did a full forensic interview with them about that report. Mm. Um, the other person who I'd written it with had since passed away, so I was the only survivor who had, had intricate knowledge of, of, of that that report mm. and basically was asked to identify people that we had spoken about in the report that we hadn't always identified by mm, name. Mm. Um, and that in turn was, I remember making a statement to these couple of girls who interviewed me and said, look, there's a lot of people in this diocese that have got a story to tell. Mm. And they were pretty concerned and they actually gave me somebody's name and said, well, look, if this stirs up anything for you, then by all means. This is know. the Royal Commission. This is the Royal Commission yeah, staff. And yeah. they, so they were really very on the ball about... Mm. Um, about the fact that this might have stirred something up for me. Um, I didn't con- use that, but what I did 
decide in the couple of days after that was that I would contact the diocese and make a formal complaint of my own, um, which is against the two priests that had assaulted, sexually assaulted me, and it included quite serious matters, as I've said it earlier on. So um, mm. we then, I then went down that pathway. Uh, it was a long pathway. It was a lengthy pathway. I wasn't happy with the legalistic nature of it. Um, mm. I felt that um, it was being really summed or compressed into just being about monetary compensation. And my view was that monetary compensation is a part of saying a genuine sorry. So to have it uh, sort of distilled to that and therefore turn it into a process that was completely focused on that, to my way of thinking, was, was not was not what I was on about. Um, no. It's, what, what other things would you have liked to have...? Well, I think it was, you know, I was... I was 17. I was a kid, in my yeah. view. Yeah. Um, and it was about the betrayal of trust. Mm. It was about the fact that as a woman, once I was identified as someone who'd had sex with a, a male, that I was was fair game for these priests. Mm. Um, it was about um, it was about you know posi- people in positions of power using that power in a way to. Um, that completely overwhelmed me. Mm. And then as an upshot of all of that, for me then to take on, mm. first of all, at the beginning the guilt, but then really the shame and then the, the results of that shame. And, and shame I see as being an internalised process. Shame is what you think about yourself and what you've yep. done, not guilt about what you've done to somebody else. And so I, t- and as a result of that internalised shame, I felt like I had no other option but to bury it very deep. And all of those other psychological issues stem out of mm. having done that, having buried it very deep in my own psyche. Um, and so a lot of the things that I've talked about come from that. And mm. I, I think also, you know, that that loss of something that was really important to me, mm. that spiritual loss, the loss of mm. something that had been quite nurturing for me mm. up until that point in time. Mm. Um, as locus, in locus parentis, they actually did a pretty good job until, you know, I became mm. a sexual being. I wasn't mm. a kid. I wasn't the little girl anymore. No. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I think also the effects on other people in my life and my relationships, you know, like it, it affected my relationship with my husband and... Um, in the, because of those fugue states that I was having, mm. it affected my relationship with my my family and particularly my father because the intimation was by one of the people that I had consulted that I would had probably been abused by my father. Right. So that put a real, mm. you know, amazing sort of difficulties for me for quite a long time um, in my relationship with my dad. Yeah. Um, especially after my mother died. Mm. Um. So, you know, the consequences were quite far-reaching and um, and I think the thing that I really have learnt is that it's never over. It's no. never finished. You're um, always dealing with it. You're always way. dealing with it. You get triggered in some way. Um, I've learnt to accept that a lot more. I don't try and pretend anymore that, it, mm. that it's not affecting me. Mm. Um, 
I think that whole process of, 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 as I said, of diminishing it down to just about being about the money, mm. um, that that in itself and the way that that was that that panned out was re-traumatizing in in, in many ways. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not sure where I am with that. I, mm. I, it's I I can mm. get pretty upset about some of that stuff. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, so that that's um, um, difficult to hear that you know you you in even in sort of going ahead and trying to resolve it with the church, um, you felt that it wasn't dealt with adequately. Well, it um, wasn't dealt with from a pastoral point of view, and yeah. and it do- certainly wasn't dealt with from an understanding my perspective point of view. Yeah. I felt like it was all about. The legal point of view and the legal your legal status, yeah. Uh, and I, th- I think that that was because I was fighting that the whole time. I felt mm. like I was constantly being, I was disadvantaging myself mm. in a way. Mm. Um, so the outcomes were not, not, not very, were, were not good at all. Mm. Um, uh, and I think you know, I played a part in that in the sense of be- because I just. I couldn't understand why I wasn't being understood. Yeah, um, yeah. and I could, that I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't get over what what it was that I wanted. And it was clear to you, but it just felt like it wasn't being understood. No. Yeah, yeah, um, which is incredibly difficult, isn't it? Because um, that's the thing that makes the most difference is when you do feel understood and you you feel like your story is validated. Yeah, um, and. Um, uh, that there's understanding there, so I I can really un- appreciate that. Um, and I guess um, what what are your thoughts now about um, where you're at, and um, particularly in relation to um, having been through so much? Um, well, I I think I think the other thing that I've learned is that you can't become an uncatholic you can't uncatholicize yourself right. uh, i tried that and it didn't work <laughs> i think a lot of people would relate to that yeah yeah um so i've had to come to terms with the fact that this is part of who i am mm. i might have been a different person had those events not happened to me um i also need to live with the fact that there's always going to be some residual um, anger there, mm. um, but uh, my I'm I'm a sort of comfortable with the notion of being a cultural Catholic, continuing to have an interest in what happens in the church, whether it's good or bad, um, but having a much more nuanced opinion about those things. Um, mm. You know, the, the indoctrination and and even perhaps my belief in in God is is, is simply not there anymore. I think, but I've, you know, from the point of view of the institution, I think I've deepened my understanding of what it's about, um, what its good points are, and and and, and what its what its bad points are. Mm. Um, uh, mm. Becoming comfortable with that is is another matter. Yeah, you know, that might yeah. Be, that's going to take a long time, I think. Yeah. What about the impacts on your sort of your own sort of personal faith and spirituality? Oh well, as I said, you know, I think um, 
I don't have a, I don't have a belief in a personal God. No, um, that's definitely gone. Mm. Um, and I probably have lost my belief in the capacity of the church to speak about those matters. Mm. Um, however, the thing that still n- is nourishing for me is, uh, to some degree, the liturgy. I still think that there's something about the liturgy that I think can be still quite uplifting, uh, especially when it's accompanied with the music and the rituals and all of those. Those things still, I can still get a, a, a feeling of being connected to, in some way with other people, um, uh, you know, through those sorts of means. And, and I've always been a fairly musical sort of a person, so the music is, is really important for me. Mm. Um, um I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I mean, as I said, personal God, that's that's gone. Yeah. Uh, and that's okay. Yeah. I feel like that's where I need to be right yeah. now. Yeah, right. Yeah, there are other ways in which you feel like your spiritual life is yeah. um, fulfilled. Absolutely. And, um, well, thank you very much for coming in today and talking um, for the project <laughs> and the podcast. Um it's a very powerful story, Elizabeth, and um, so I'm very thankful that you were able to share it with us and I think that there will be a lot of people out there who will um, be able to relate. To yeah, I think perhaps said. my last comment would be that mm-hmm. one of my concerns is that women have been underrepresented um, in those people that have come forward. Yeah. And I am particularly keen to tell my story if it gives permission for other women, yep. particularly to to say, "Look, this is not this is not your fault. Um, this was done to you, and that you have a right for your story to be heard." So, if that's the one, if if that if I achieve that for one other woman, I will feel 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 like I've I've, I've achieved something that's important. Fantastic last words. Thanks, okay. Elizabeth. Thank you.